0: All right This morning we're going to be in First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 22. So in First Samuel chapter 21, here's kind of what's happened so far, or here's kind of what's last happened. So David has had to flee the city because King Saul is well, King Saul's looking to kill him. And so he has fled the city, and he has gone to the temple. And at the temple, he speaks with a priest, a man named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech gives him food and the sword of Goliath, and he sends him out. And David goes then into hiding. And today, whenever we come to chapter 22, we are again going to see Ahimelech. And then we're going to see two other characters. And there's going to be three people we mainly focus on. King Saul... And a man named Doeg. And as we look at these two, like, they are, man, their actions are going to be ones that, like, you and I probably won't ever even be in a position to undertake. The, the decisions they make, like, they're not ones that we're probably going to ever have to make. But as we look at them, I want us to really consider, like, What is it driving their actions? What are their motivations? What is it that is deep-rooted in their hearts? And I want us to consider, man, is that rooted in my heart somewhere? So we'll look at these two, and we'll also look at Ahimelech. We'll look at the words that he says. We'll look at the truth that he proclaims and the confidence with which he does so. And I want us to really ask ourselves, like, man, do I speak the truth like that? Do I have confidence like that? In a moment like the one he faces, would I have confidence like that? And if not, how could I have? And how was he able to? My sermon in a sentence today would be this. If you are grounded in the truth of the gospel, then your confidence will increase and your heart will change. Three points for today. We're going to consider the confidence that truth brings, the cost of the truth, and the comfort of a keeper. We're going to pick up in verse 6, chapter 22. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his, star- his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie of weight as at this day? And Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. Now let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled, and they did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the sons of Ahitub, named Abiathar, he escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you will be in safekeeping. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God. and He's given them to us because he loves us. And they are true. Do you know a trait that I really admire in a person? It's confidence. Not like that false kind of confidence that like, brings with it an air of arrogance, but like true confidence that brings with it a feeling of calm, a feeling of stability. As I thought about who in my life has this, I actually thought about some of y'all, but I don't want your egos to swell, so I'm not using you. I then also thought about another friend of mine, but the problem is none of y'all know him. So, even though he's a fictional character, I decided to pick someone that I thought more people would know, Jack Dawson. (laughs) So, if you don't know who Jack Dawson is, Jack is one of the main characters in the movie Titanic. And to me, he's an interesting character. Jack has no money, no family, and no home, but really no worries. But I'm really drawn to his character because Jack brings with him this confidence. He's the guy who's confident enough to go talk to the girl, to get up on the table and dance, to go to the swag, like high roller dinner, even though he's wearing like peasant's clothes and has 10 bucks in his pocket. Now, granted, he didn't have to, but that's what his plan was, right? His confidence are seen in these ways, and it's kind of fun, right? Like, it's fun to be the confident guy who dances on the table. But his confidence is seen later on, too, whenever things are a bit more dire. Because whenever the Titanic is about to go down, he tells Rose, like, look, girl, this ship is going to sink. The water we're about to be in is unthinkably cold. And you're going to be okay. Look, I know that Jack's a fictional character. But as we talk about confidence, I bet that there's somebody in your life that like, these kind of things could, like bring to mind. You probably know somebody that exudes confidence in this way. In our text, we see somebody displaying confidence. We see the priest, the in the way that he addresses Saul, have this calm, stabilizing confidence. As this episode kind of opens, we're looking in on a scene with Saul. He's sitting around... With his closest leaders and his spear in his hand, which we've seen is kind of his thing, which is weird. He's heard that David, like he's found out where David is hiding, that there's men with him. And Saul begins to do what we could categorize as a grown-up pouting. It's like, nobody tells me anything. You guys love him more than me. You guys have conspired against me. You guys have kept things from me. The words that Saul says, they remind us of something. That has been shown about to be true about him over and over again that he is selfish and insecure, that he doesn't lead with truth and love, but instead he looks to intimidate and guilt those that follow him. They, he tries to intimidate them and guilt them into action. It seems as though the men who follow Saul, who have likely always been loyal to him, it seems as though their loyalty is beginning to shift from Saul to David at the very least it seems like they have an admiration for David, which makes sense, right? Like these men are warriors and David has proven himself to be a great warrior. No one says anything except for one guy. He's someone that the Bible has kind of introduced to us already. In chapter 21, it says that Doeg was there at the temple when David was. And in chapter 21, we learn three things about this guy. We learn his name. We learn his job, that he's the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And we learn something else that's emphasized three times in this chapter. He is an Edomite, which all this means to us is that he is a foreigner. Okay? He is not someone who has done what is needed and necessary to become a member of the nation of Israel. Meaning he has not submitted himself to the God of Israel, which as we go on becomes very apparent. In this moment, As Saul is addressing these men, he is angry. And whenever no one is stepping up to set themselves apart as being loyal to Saul, it seems like Doeg sees an opportunity to advance himself. And he's like, hey, I've seen that guy. And this is the break that Saul had hoped for. His whining had got him what he was after. Kids don't get ideas. And so he sends for the priest. He sends for Ahimelech and his family. And whenever he gets sent for it, there's no doubt Ahimelech knows like this is not a good thing. Like Saul's not bringing him in so that he can get like the priest of the month award or something like that, right? Like this is not what's going down. Whenever he gets called, he has to know that this encounter won't be pleasant. That the outcome could be dire for him when he gets there. The first word Saul says no doubt cues him in that this is not good. You ever been called into someone who has authority over you, like your boss or, if you're, like, or maybe your parent, and like a, the first words out of their mouth, their body language, their tone, like everything communicates to you this is not going to be pleasant. Like whenever the conversation starts out like, so, with like 14 O's after it, or like, all right, now look. it's like This isn't going to be good. This is the same thing happening here with Saul because he starts out here now his tone his body language everything about him would have communicated his anger and his frustration yet the priest remains calm he's respectful in the way that he addresses him and the things that he says gives the feeling that he has this confidence and stability about him Maybe you found yourself in a situation like that where you knew like this is not going to be a pleasant situ- the pleasant encounter, but you know that you have the truth on your side and it changes your entire outlook. The truth allows us to be confident even when our circumstances are uncertain or most certainly bad. So here's how it plays out. Verse 13, Saul begins to level accusations against the priest and he makes some claims that To be fair, like, they are true. Ahimelech had given David food. He had given him Goliath's sword. And he even owns up, It's like, and I did pray for him. Which, it's like, you're a priest. That's kind of your job. The recounting of events that Saul does, like, they were true. But here's where Saul gets it wrong. Saul gets it wrong as he begins to ascribe motive to someone else's actions and tell himself a story that he didn't know if it was actually true. He doesn't know that David is conspiring against him, but he has convinced himself of this and has now told himself this and is owning it and claiming it as truth. He didn't really know if David was looking for an opportunity to attack him or conspire against him. But have you ever been conspiring or plotting against someone and like just because you were doing it, you assumed they were doing it too, even though you didn't really have any proof? Y'all, it's dangerous whenever we look at the actions of another and decide for ourselves this is what their motives are. It's probably even more dangerous whenever we simply decide for ourselves what someone else is thinking or what someone else is planning to do. The Bible doesn't speak well of projecting or assuming what we don't know. But it does over and over again speak to the power, the freedom, and the confidence that is found in truth. And that power, that freedom, that confidence is what is put on display here as Ahimelech answers Saul. He replies in verses 14 and 15. He replies with a list of facts that he presents as questions. He says, Who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is your who is the king's son-in-law? Who's the captain of your bodyguard? Who is most honored in your house? Look, he's asking questions, but here's the way that Saul is meant to hear them. Saul, David's your most faithful man. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your guards, and he at least should be the most honored man in your house. What's coming through here is not assumptions, but facts. And we've seen someone else do this on David's behalf, too. Hasn't Jonathan gone on David's behalf to speak to Saul? Maybe as Ahimelech is listing all of these great things about David, maybe Saul is thinking back to that conversation with Jonathan like and telling himself a story. My son is on his side. My leaders are on his side. The priest is on his side. Everybody is on his side and they're all conspiring against me. They want him to wear the crown and not me. Maybe. Maybe that is what he's thinking. But it seems fair to say that his anger is boiling up inside of him. Verse 15. Ahimelech asks one more question. Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. No, this is something that I do because this is the job that I have been called for. And he ends by saying this, Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. Your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. Here's what he's telling Saul. Look, I know you're the king. I know you can do whatever you want to me. But look here. You cannot, you cannot put these accusations on me. You cannot say you have sinned here and be justified in it because I haven't sinned. I have done nothing wrong and you cannot be justified in putting this on me. If you do, that's on you, not me. You are the one that will have to answer for that. He knows, though, just because he speaks the truth, it doesn't mean that things will turn out his way but he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't plead for Saul's mercy. Instead, he speaks the truth and he trusts God with the outcome, knowing that his life and the life of those he loves are at stake. You know what this story reminds me of? It reminds me of the story that we find in Daniel chapter 3 with three dudes named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't know the story, here's the Cliff Notes version. A ruler named Nebuchadnezzar sets up this great image. He's like, I'm going to have the band play, and you, all of you, are going to bow down. Band plays, everybody bows, except these three dudes. Nebuchadnezzar calls them in. He's like, "Um, I'm going to burn you alive. Let's try again. Band's going to play. You're going to bow. And they say, nah, dog. That's not how this is going to go down. This is my version. But... They, here's what they tell him. They're like, you know what? Our God is able to save us. Our God is able to save us from you. But, even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to you and your image. Because they knew the truth. That Nebuchadnezzar was a man. And that even if they were executed... The God whose honor they were standing up for would ultimately deliver them. In light of eternity, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar did that day, God was on their side. They stood before an angry ruler, spoke the truth, knowing it might cost them their lives, and they trusted God with the results. These three did it, and that's exactly what we see the priests doing here. Christian, do you trust God like that? Do you trust God whenever he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free? Because that verse doesn't mean if you're a Christian and you tell the truth that everything's going to be fine. But it does mean this, that the truth of the gospel sets you free to tell the truth in confidence and to be able to trust God with the results, whatever they might be. How do we get confidence like that? We ground ourselves in the truth of who we are in Jesus if your confidence is found in that, you can ask the question like the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews does, man, what can man do to me? And as you read and meditate on the word, as you listen to God's word proclaimed, as you pray and ask God to make you truly believe that you are found in Christ, that you are hidden in him, that you are one with him, the one who not only speaks the truth, but he himself actually is the truth, then you with confidence can answer that question, What can man do to me? You can answer with a resounding, nothing that matters in light of eternity. The truth about who you are in Jesus should bring you a confidence. Will your confidence waver? Yes, it will. But the one who your confidence is founded in never does. And we can return to him over and over for that groundedness that our souls long for. So, Ahimelech, he's spoken the truth confidently. And he's done so knowing that much is at stake for him and for those he loves. And we see here that the truth came at a cost. So just remember years ago, um, it was a normal work day for my dad. Like his truck, he had parks where he always does, parks on the side of his shop. Trucks parked between his shop and the road. It was raining one day, and this dude pulled in. He was coming in a little hot, and it's kind of muddy right there. And this dude pulls in and slides in and wrecks into my dad's park car. Now, in this moment, dude has two options. Drive away and not say anything, which, like, he very easily could have done. It would have been so easy, like, just the way things are laid out. He could have pulled off, not said a word, come back later be like, Mike, I think somebody wrecked into your truck. Or, he could do the right thing. He could go in and be like, I wrecked your parked car. And he did. The dude came in and he's like, I wrecked your parked car. Now look, man, I thought it was actually a pretty noble act. Because the dude knew that like, that's fairly significant damage that I am going to have to pay for. It was a noble act. But in comparison to our text, Like, that act was unimaginably small. The truth cost him something, but it was monetary. In our text, the cost is quite high. Because even though Ahimelech says, Saul, you can't put this sin on me. You can't put this sin on me. You can't put this on my family because we haven't sinned. Saul doesn't care. Saul follows his feelings. Or what we might say is Saul followed his heart heart's pretty reliable, right? Saul's response to Ahimelech makes it seem like he didn't care what he had to say. Like maybe he didn't even really listen to what he had to say. Like Saul had made up his mind before the priest ever even arrived. He turns to his soldier and says, execute him and execute all of them. And they refuse. Now, why? Was it fear of God? Was it reverence for God? We don't know. But whatever the reason, none of them lift a hand. But Saul knows something. He knows that there is a man among them who uh, is a little bit desperate. Remember, Doeg's the only one who spilled the beans about David. Though he probably wasn't the only one with intel. See, Doeg's already showed his hand. He has already showed, this is the king that I am going to follow. And we're not talking about King David or King Saul. We're talking about the king and the God of the universe or Saul and Doeg has made his decision and he has made the wrong one Saul can probably sense his longing for approval and position and so whenever he orders him to do executions he's all over it he kills Ahimelech he kills his family he goes to the city of the priests and lays waste to everything and everyone man, woman, child, infant and all the animals decimated think about being that guy Think about how depraved and how desperate he is. He's is willing to commit mass murder for the approval of some dude. And Saul, he orders the decimation of a city. If you read back, did you know Saul had been ordered to do the same thing? Saul had been ordered to go and annihilate a city. But that order came from God, who said, Go be an instrument of my judgment. Go and act judgment on these people who for decades have been unrepentant. And Saul didn't do it. He did some, but he kept the king and some of what he thought was the best stuff. But now that he feels his name has been shamed, or maybe his ego has been hurt a little bit, he's just fine to not order the annihilation of a sinful people, but the priest of God. You know who this action puts him in the same category as? Biblical characters like Pharaoh and Jezebel. Or if you want a face that uh, you can picture to put with it, it puts him in the category of uh, Stalin and Hitler. Historically, not a winning camp to be in. Christian, have you ever had the same heart as these men? You've... You've likely never carried out mass murder or probably ever even ordered it. But if you had hearts that look like theirs, how would you answer these questions? Do you ever want to hurt people or see bad things happen to them because you feel like they've wronged you or maybe hurt your ego? And that's having a heart like Saul. Do you ever do things that you know are wrong? so that you can win the approval of somebody? Do you desire the approval of people more than you value obedience to God? It's a heart like dough egg. Guess what, church? I struggle with both of these. Because you know what? I want to get even whenever I feel like I've been wronged. And you know what? I do want people to approve of me. You know what's common in both of these? An idol of self. These men struggled with it. I struggle with it. Christian, do you struggle with it? Does your heart look like theirs? You know, as I see this in myself, I hate it. And it makes me long for a heart that looks, that looks more like a legs. I long for a heart that says, regardless of the cost, I want to stand on and be found in the truth. But the only way for us to have hearts like that is to be found in Jesus and to have our hopes set on Him because He above all others knows what it really means to say the truth is going to cost you something. But the truth brings us confidence. Often that confidence will come at a cost and that's why we need to know that we have the comfort of a keeper. Amid all of this destruction... One of the sons of Ahimelech escapes. Maybe the only person to escape this total annihilation. And whenever he escapes, he goes to the only place, the only person that he can probably think of. He goes to David. And as David hears the news from Abiathar, he is no doubt filled with sorrow for him. And he extends an offer to him and he gives him words of comfort. He says, stay with me. Don't be afraid. With me, you will be in safekeeping. And in this moment, these words would have been life-changing for him. David is extending to him a place to to stay, a place to be kept safe. But there's actually more packed into it than just that. Because he also identifies with him. He says, the one who seeks your life. Man, he seeks mine too. He is saying, look, man... I know the feeling. Let me enter into this with you. And while I do, let me keep you safe. Christian, this is what Jesus says to you. Scripture tells us Christ knows what it's like to be joyful, to suffer, to be sad, to love, to long for, to feel all the things that you do. And Jesus, just like David did with Abiathar, says, let me enter into this. Whatever this in your life right now, whatever this is, Jesus says, let me enter into that with you. David offered Abiathar a place. He offered him protection. Christian, Jesus offers you a place in his kingdom, a home forever. And despite the sufferings that this life will bring, he promises, I will give you an identity that can never be stripped away. And I will give you a home with me for all of eternity a place where there will be no more sadness and there will be no reason for you to fear. You know, as we read the Bible, sometimes it's really hard for us to connect, right? Like, this text can be hard for us to drop ourselves in the middle of. Like, the situations the people are in, their customs, their culture, everything about it seems so far removed from us. My hope is that as we have tried to dig down today and see what lies beneath the actions, what's really rooted in the heart of these people, my hope is that you can see that the principles that are on display here, that the sins and the motivations of the heart that these people struggle with and ultimately the need that they had is no different than it is for you and I. In the movie Titanic, after the ship goes down, and all those people are left floating in the icy cold ocean. Jack finds Rose and takes her to the floating door. Every, everybody knows this scene, right? And if you've been on the internet like ever, you've seen all the jokes and memes that accompany it, okay? And I get that. But in that moment, Jack knew something. He knew that if he stayed in the water, He would die. But if he let Rose stay on that door, lifted up out of the icy ocean, that she would make it. And that truth and his love for her allowed him to go and to make that sacrifice. Jackson made up character, y'all. I'm fully aware. But the beauty of that story is amazing. Amazing. It's a story that we like. It's a story that we are drawn to. Do you know why? Because it's actually derived from a very real story that every human being longs for in their soul to be true. And the good news of the gospel is that that story that we all long for to be true, it is true and has real implications for your life and for mine. Because Christ, too, knew the truth. The truth that the only way for you and I to be made right before the Father was for him to lay down his life in our place. And the truth is that because he has done that, that you and I can stand in the confidence that we are his, that no one can take us out of his hand, and that nothing can change the way that he feels about us. If you have submitted your life to Jesus, that means this. That God the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who created everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer word of his power, that he looks at you in the face and he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. And because of Jesus in you, I, the God of all, am well pleased. And you know what? As He looks at you and calls you son and daughter. That's the truest thing about you. Regardless of how you feel. And that standing before Him should lead us to something. It should lead us to with confidence proclaim the truth and the beauty of the gospel to everyone that we meet. It should lead us to with confidence be able to say, This is the truth about who I am at my core. That yes, I am broken and depraved that there is nothing inherently good in me this is who I am these are the sins that I have committed but that because of Jesus and the sacrifice that he has made on behalf none of that is seen by God that it has been covered that as our confessions and our assurance said it has been nailed to the cross and that debt is no longer charged to me the truth and beauty that this is who I am in Jesus. If we are grounded in the truth of the gospel, then our confidence will increase and our heart will change. Christian, as we wrap up, I want this to be what is left in your mind as you leave today. God the Father, the creator of the universe, if you are in Christ, looks in your face and says, "You are my son, you are my daughter." In you I am well pleased. And this is the truest thing about you. And pray for us. God, we thank you for this text. Man, we thank you. Man, we thank you that you show us the sinfulness of our hearts. We thank you that you drive us to the cross as we see how broken we are. But we thank you that one, Jesus, laid himself down in our place. We thank you that we can stand in and be grounded in the truth. Pray that you would teach us to return to Christ over and over day by day and there draw from well that we might be reminded of what he has done for us and because of that who we are in him god make us confident to proclaim the truth to ourselves first and then to all that we meet we thank you that you love us that you care for us that you have redeemed us and that you look at us and call us yours Thank you for this time and for your word, most of all for Jesus in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.